listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You know, whether somebody's using drugs or not, their life is still valuable. Naloxone is a lifesaver. Remember that we're not our disease. I am not a bag of heroin. I'm Stacy. I'm just as normal as the next person. My outlook has always been to educate because I think when you're talking about stigma here as, a, as an overall goal of yours, I think the only way to really gnaw away at that is to educate people. Unfortunately, I have not had many positive experiences with the medical community, with anybody I know or anybody in my family. I hope that changed. Um, opioid use disorder is a chronic condition. It's it's not something that you know goes away forever. It's not like you, you go through a treatment program and then suddenly it's not a problem anymore. You know, we don't always get it the first time, and you know, sometimes it takes us a couple of times before we finally get it. Don't give up on us so easily. Hi, my name is Logan Kissel, and Let's Talk Stigma. Let's Talk Stigma is an educational podcast miniseries designed to highlight the stigma associated with opioid use disorder and the ongoing opioid epidemic. Each of these episodes will feature a number of different voices from individuals who have in some way experienced the effects of the opioid epidemic, whether in their social life, family life, or professional career. We hope listeners of this podcast will listen with an open mind, reflect on the stories they hear, and be able to recognize and combat stigma associated with opioid use disorder. In this episode of Let's Talk Stigma, we'll discuss polysubstance use and how the stigma surrounding it impacts individuals experiencing homelessness. When we talk about substance use disorders, we often think of a single substance, when in reality, polysubstance use is common among people with substance use disorders. We talked with Dr. Janet Astle from Duquesne University School of Pharmacy and asked her what polysubstance use is. A very intentional and purposeful inappropriate use or misuse of multiple substances. And those substances could be prescription, non-prescription, illicit drugs. It would also include cannabis, alcohol, and using them could occur concurrently. It could be episodically, or it could be alternately. Why do people use multiple substances? There's a misconception within the population of users that somehow using two different substances, particularly if they have different activities, they'll negate one another. You know, so somehow that's safer. So if you use a downer and then use an upper to reverse that, that somehow that makes it safer. It's kind of like the fallacy that if I'm drinking alcohol and I have that buzz that, boy, if I drink a couple cups of coffee, right, that'll sober me right up. Now, we know that that's not true. But I think there is that fallacy that exists, too, with multiple substances. We talked with Dr. Holly Lasilla, who's an associate professor at Duquesne University School of Pharmacy, who's also a practicing mental health counselor. And what are patterns you've seen in polysubstance use? If we look at the general population, I think that polysubstance use, depending on your demographic that you speak about, and we're seeing that start at an early age. If you look at some of the data from the DSM-4 and the diagnosis of polysubstance use, it was about 20%. And when we speak about polysubstance use, there's typically a stimulant piece in that. 
So I think that now that we've taken that out, we don't really know what the ground is yet. We need some epidemiologic data to start looking at that. And again, based on methodology, because everything's now being diagnosed as substance use disorder for marijuana, substance use disorder for alcohol. So they're all individual. And then we don't know what's mutually inclusive rather than mutually exclusive. So the first thing is to understand and describe what is happening, right? And then once we are able to get a ground with what's happening around polysubstance use or stimulant use, then we need to implement some training to get that information out there into the hands of healthcare providers so that we can be more accessible and aware of what we're looking for. So how do we treat polysubstance use? We spoke with Dr. Harrison Farrow, a pharmacist at UPMC Western Psychiatric Hospital, to answer this question. I think the biggest thing healthcare providers should be aware of is that there is treatment out there. For polysubstance use, yeah, it can be tricky, but tackling, like, what's the most prominent thing that is really affecting that person? What's the thing they use the most? What is causing someone to come back to the hospital? over and over again. What substance is it? Treat that, try and treat the root cause if you can, and then and then go from there. It may seem like a mountain that you have to climb, but when we look at treating someone with diabetes, you know, we're focused on their diet, we're focused on their cholesterol, we're focused on their blood pressure. Why should that be any different than say treating someone who has polysubstance use? So we can treat, say, if they have stimulant use disorder, all right, treat it, get them into whatever outpatient therapy would be helpful for them. They also have opioid use disorder. Okay, great. Give them buprenorphine, give them methadone, give them whatever helps them. So why should it be any different for that? Focus on what's more prominent. If someone's like, yeah, I use stimulants every day, I might use opioids two or three times a week, but stimulants are the thing, bringing them back to the hospital again and again. I would focus on that first. Dr. Farrow shared an impactful patient experience that he had with someone who had a polysubstance use disorder. A guy I talked to, he had opioid use disorder. He also had, I think, marijuana use disorder. I'm pretty sure he had like a methamphetamine use disorder. And he came in. And I just want to talk to him about starting medications for opioid use disorder. And he was so fixated on what happened to him getting there. So he and his partner were using substances and he gave her a little bit too much heroin and she became like unresponsive. He couldn't get her up. And then he gave her some meth, like injected meth into her thinking it would help. And I mean, the ambulance showed up. He does. He has no idea what happened to her. I don't know what happened to her, but it made me think, like he was fixated on this, the whole interview. And it made me think about someone who might have a long history of substance use, who might think like in terms of thinking about the rationale behind that situation. And that's what someone might do. Like they might think they're helping, but he might have unfortunately killed his partner. And that's what he was really struggling with. But something that was really eye-opening in that experience was when you talk about or you hear about someone's thing that really pushed them into wanting to be in recovery, that was the thing for him. He's like, I want to get into treatment. I mean, I'm 
really struggling right now with what happened. I'm responsible for what happened. He wanted to start medications and and go from there and go to outpatient treatment. And it can be scary. And it, it comes back to having that conversation with patients. It can be scary in the moment. Get help when you need it, no matter what. Regarding treatment, Dr. Lasilla mentioned... One of the things that we sometimes are short-sighted with is that this is a lifelong process. So often when we look at the average length of stay for our intensive outpatient programs or some of our residential programs, we see three to six months at most. And then a lot of times there's no treatment continuum from there. And the data suggests with stimulant use specifically that there's a lot of brain changes that occur with stimulant use that the brain can heal given time. And the data starts looking very positive to move back to normal of healing in like 14 months. Often people may not have access to programs after 14 months. So I always advocate for treatment beyond the active treatment experience. And that's keeping people engaged with care long after what we would think would be the active treatment experience, teaching people how to cope with symptoms, giving them the tools needed. So I think it's a lifelong process of having access to treatment. And that's maybe not the models that we use currently. But that's what some of the data and the research is suggesting from some of the very hard science when we look at the brain chemistries and and the pictures of the brain is that we need treatment consistently long-term and not just very short-sighted. How have you seen stigma impact recovery? I remember hearing some of my clients and patients tell me that they didn't want to go see their, their primary care providers when they've come out of recovery or even in the middle of active addiction because they felt uncomfortable with that relationship with that provider. They were shameful. And upon probing a little more, and I said, was that your perception and your projection of that? Or was that a real experience that you were really feeling like you were getting this back? It didn't really matter. It was important to them. But they said that a lot of it came from the provider. So I think that while we may be charged with supporting people in this experience, we need to check our own stuff inside of us. What's coming up for us around this topic? What's coming up for us around substance use disorder? And do we need to do more work within ourselves before we work with patients? Dr. Astle noted. The most important thing for people to know is that any kind of substance use disorder is treatable. People do recover. And I think that message of hope is incredibly important. Also, we need to recognize that individuals oftentimes turn to substances to self-medicate. And as healthcare providers, we need to recognize that and make sure that we are addressing underlying conditions. Dr. Farrow shared similar sentiments. I, as a pharmacist, I could start someone on meds, sure. Like, that's that's great and all, but if they can't get them, what good is it going to do? So for these patients, they really do need to be connected to resources. And that's, while that's not like a formal way of treating someone's use disorder, without those resources, they cannot 
get to treatment. So whether it's finding them another place to stay, getting them set up for medical assistance, getting them like bus tickets if they need, those are the things that are really helpful. We also spoke with Dave Lettrick, Executive Director, and Lauren Ballou, a harm reduction and connection to care specialist at Bridge Outreach. Bridge Outreach is an organization that, among other things, provides Narcan naloxone distribution, harm reduction, and connection to care for individuals who are experiencing homelessness that use substances. How does polysubstance use impact people who use substances and are possibly experiencing homelessness? For a period of time, we saw a greater divide between those who gravitated towards opioids and those who gravitated towards stimulants that has sort of moved closer together. And overwhelmingly, polysubstance use represents the majority of individuals that we work with, at least, where it's a combination of both and both used in ways to counter the effects of the other. There's much less tendency to be committed to one particular substance. And what are stigma associated with people experiencing homelessness who use substances? One of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to someone living on the street is that they are on the street because of the substance. Overwhelmingly not the case. The only thing that is consistent is a history of trauma, of extreme trauma. And when someone ends up on the street as a result of extreme trauma in their past and they're exposed to the trauma of living on the street, it's only logical that finding a substance to try and ease the results of that trauma is going to happen. Most of the individuals we work with that are polysubstance oriented became polysubstance oriented because of trying to survive on the street, not the other way around. In all my time doing this work, everyone that I've encountered on the street, not a single person has said that they are there because of substances. And every single person that I work with on the street that uses substances tells me they are doing it as a method of survival. That's Lauren Ballou, harm reduction and connection to care specialist. Society tends to believe that substance use is a criminal issue, and it's always based off assumptions that people who use drugs are criminals, they're violent. The media portrays people who use drugs in a light where if it's a movie, you're going to see them dirty and in tattered clothing and and stuff like that. And we, we really need to shift our views to understand that it's a human right issue. So many of the smartest, most caring, genuinely wonderful individuals I've met in my life have been using substances and often are still using substances. And that substance doesn't define who they are. Somebody doesn't have to steal. Somebody doesn't have to write bad checks. Somebody doesn't have to commit armed robbery to be able to maintain life on substances. Overwhelmingly, we support a lot of individual, hundreds of individuals that are out there surviving every day and using substances and finding ways to support the purchase of those substances without breaking any laws at all. Sometimes it almost hits you in the face when you get so accustomed 
and you know someone so well, and you go take someone to seek medical care, and the minute you walk through the door of an emergency room, the providers that are there are just so disconnected from the human condition that exists. And a lot of times, the, the reason that we're seeking care is not for those substances. We're seeking care for a medical condition that may or may not have anything to do with those substances, but the immediate focus is on the fact that those substances are a part of that person's life. And so trying to find ways to overcome that prejudice that exists in those situations, it's an ongoing scenario. It's an ongoing conversation and it's frustrating, but it occurs at every level. It's not just in hospital EDs. It's within social service support organizations and it's really everywhere. Our medical records are really good at maintaining somebody's life history. Our medical organizations are really bad at associating someone's medical life history with their current state of being. Someone who has substance use disorder diagnosis within their charts from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that's in there. And if they haven't been using any substances for 20 years and they present to an ED, they're going to be treated as though they are using substances. You have somebody with past substance use and they walk into a doctor's office and they're suffering from chronic pain or like having joint pain and inflammation. They're going to be treated differently than somebody who would walk in with that problem and didn't have a past history with substances. And that's all based off assumptions. Anyone with chronic pain deserves treatment regardless of their history of substances. When seeking treatment, what barriers do people experiencing homelessness face? There's definitely a lack of resources on the treatment end for people experiencing homelessness. I've actually had treatment facilities not take somebody because they were sleeping outside. So there is also awareness, too, that... It's very hard for somebody to be successful going into treatment when they're just going to return back into the same environment they came from. But there has yet to be any any action taken to try to get more resources out there for folks that are outside. All of our formal treatment facilities and programs are really designed for someone who is housed somewhere. So if I have someone who's living on the street that feels like, you know what, I want to go to rehab for 30 days and can go through detox, come on the backside of a 30-day program, it's really great, and then have to come back and go straight back outside to a tent, it's just so hard. When you're sleeping in a tent and you don't have access to public transportation, the chances of being able to get there and go there are, are slim to none. To a great extent for, unfortunately, homeless services, the treatment that exists for someone with substances, there's a divide there. Someone can't get homeless services unless they're homeless. If you go long-term treatment and you go past 90 days, you're no longer homeless, so you don't have homeless services available. Providers lack a lot of knowledge around the fact that somebody can use multiple substances and 
for somebody to stop using all substances at one time is, is a lot and it's extremely unrealistic. And sometimes people don't even want to stop using all the substances. They may choose to stop using one, but want to continue using another. And I think providers tend to focus on, we need to stop everything right now. And it's very hard for people who use drugs to accomplish something like that in, in one doctor's visit. It's just, it's not realistic at all. What about people who want to be treated for polysubstance use? I think that our provider community has really sort of boxed up treatment for opioids, for benzos, and for stimulants into separate categories. There's a tendency to label an individual according to whatever the most provident substance is at the moment, but recognizing that in pretty much every case, it's a combination of all three in some way that is occurring and looking for a more comprehensive approach to addressing not only the substance dependency, but where the root causes are for that individual needing to seek out that substance to be able to feel as though they can function. And I think that's the real missing piece of the pie. I think that ties into allowing somebody to be their own expert. They're going to know what's best for them. And sometimes as a provider, you're going to have conflicting views. But I feel like our job is to put all the options on the table. In the past, I held a job where there were so many contingencies around somebody just coming in to get medication for their opioid use disorder, and you had to do X, Y, and Z, and, and now working on the other side and, and allowing people to have that choice to make decisions for themselves, I see such greater success, and it's never going to work if we're trying to squeeze everyone into a box. And what else would you tell providers and future healthcare professionals about providing care for people who are experiencing homelessness? Legitimate harm reduction training and understanding. I don't think that is something that is introduced as part of the educational aspect for medical providers or pharmacists. An in-depth knowledge and understanding of harm reduction, the evolution of harm reduction, includes substance use and the evolution of substance use and creates a, a strong understanding not only of where we are now and how we need to respond effectively in harm reduction, but how we got here. And that's a piece that most people tend to miss. See what's out there, see what's working and what doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, drive for change and innovate. Never be satisfied with the way things are done. Understand the way things are done. Understand the way things can be done better and innovate, push, drive. Don't stay in one place. Don't do it this way just because the people who have been doing it for 20 years tell you that's the way we've always done it. If somebody's been doing it that way for 20 years and it's not working, be the one that speaks up. Be the one that does research. Be the one that does a study. Be the individual that can really start to create and drive change. This podcast was developed by the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy in partnership with Duquesne University School of Pharmacy. Funding for this podcast was provided in part by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 